0: except it was on the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? Well, it's a day that's set aside once a week for rest and for worship. Now, God models the Sabbath by resting on the seventh day, and later he includes remembering the Sabbath as the third commandment. In Jewish culture, they strictly obeyed this law starting at sunset Friday night through sunset a Saturday night. So if you're supposed to rest and not do any work, then well, what kinds of things constitute as work? The Pharisees created these man-made laws to protect you from working, kind of like a hedge around the actual law. Now this sounds good, but they got a little carried away. See, they created 613 laws and 39 categories for work. They essentially made their laws and even themselves to be the Lord of the Sabbath. So when Jesus' disciples picked some grain, that violated one of the Pharisees' laws, but did not actually violate anything commanded in Scripture. So they got mad and they confronted Jesus. So Jesus counters with two things. First, he reminds them of a time when King David broke the law by eating the priest's bread on the Sabbath out of necessity. Basically, he's saying that God's laws are not designed to make life impossible. But the second thing he mentions is much deeper. He says that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, and that he is Lord of the Sabbath. So basically, he's reminding them of the lost purpose of the Sabbath and that Jesus himself is God, the author of the law. So the authority is not in the law, but rather in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's with this purpose and freedom that many Christians today observe the Sabbath on Sunday rather than Saturday to remember Jesus' resurrection. So there you go. A little bit about the Sabbath, and that's enough today for our historical minute.
1: Let us open with prayer. Father, we thank you for, again, a beautiful day in Arizona. Uh, we just pray, Lord, that as we gather tonight over your word, as we go through the gospel of Mark, that you would continue to, to share with us your love and your care for us, your wisdom, Lord, that you would give us things to hold on to, Lord, as we walk through life that would make it easier, that we would experience more peace as a result, more joy, more happiness. So, Father, those are all our prayers tonight, um, and we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, we're picking up in chapter 2, verse 22 of Mark today, and we're going to look a little bit about what Mike just talked about, about Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. And so I'll just pick up in verse 23. It says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to them, Look, why is it that you're just—look at what they are doing, what is unlawful, not lawful, on the Sabbath— so it's interesting. I don't know if they just came out of the grain fields and the Pharisees noticed it or they were hiding behind the grain stalks. I don't know. But they were certainly looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. Kind of entered into that phase where Jesus is going to face increasing persecution and increasing questions about his authority, about who he is, about his legitimacy, anything they can to take him down. And so if you remember last week, they started by asking him about fasting. And he said... And he kind of answered that question, and and fasting was one of those laws that Mike talked about that they put around the Ten Commandments, and there was actually only one fasting day that was required by Jewish law, that's the Day of Atonement, but they concocted four big ones, and then it was every Monday and Thursday that they were supposed to fast, and so they weren't doing that, and so when they confronted Jesus, Jesus said, hey, look, I'm still here. When I'm gone, they'll fast, but But right now, the Lord of all things is here, and they're celebrating, and he equated that to the bridegroom. And while the bridegroom's party is going on, you celebrate, and afterwards, you can go back to normal life. Pharisees now question another one of those laws, and it's actually a little bit more meaty because it's tied to one of the Ten Commandments, the big ones, right? The third commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, it's an interesting one, all the way through Scripture, God is super serious by remembering the Sabbath day. He banned people from bringing uh, food into the city and selling them in the marketplace during the Sabbath because that was an encouragement for people to work on the Sabbath. And he says, nobody's gonna work on the Sabbath. He says, this is super important. I I created the world in six days and on the seventh day I rested and so too you need to rest. Jesus says that it's for man. It's for our benefit. A day that we reconnect with him. A day that we rest, a day that we play, a day to refigure out what's truly important in life. That's what the Sabbath was meant to be. And so they were going along, and one of the laws that, as Mike was saying, was uh, you can't uh, thresh the grain. You can't, you know, take the sickle to it and, and harvest the grain. And and they had gotten so fine tuned, and if you were to take this law super literally by grabbing hold of some grain as you're walking by and chomping on it as a snack, that was considered threshing, right? Or it was considered g- gathering the, the harvest and that was considering work and, and all those different things. Now, you can take a step back and say, well, that's pretty dumb. I mean, he's just grabbing a handful and that was it. But, but they were super literal and they were trying again to catch Jesus in something and they thought they had him. They thought they had him on the third commandment and it was gonna be interesting how he would respond. So he said... Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Now, the bread of presence was one of the things in the tabernacle, right? And in the temple as well. They would cook 12 loaves of bread the first day of every week and put it in the temple of the Lord or in the tabernacle of the Lord as a, a, a smell that was pleasing to the Lord. And in the highest worship, these were holy pieces of bread. You weren't supposed to eat them. But then after a week was up, then the priests were allowed to eat them and consume them, but nobody else. And so it was foreboding to touch those things, right? Well, David and his crew, and actually it was mainly David and maybe a couple guys that were with him, they were fleeing from Saul. They wanted the sword that was in the, t- in the, the place where where uh, Abathar was, and so they picked up the sword, and say, and David said, hey, do you have anything to eat? And the priest was like, well, we don't have anything, you know, except for the bread of presence. And Abathar gave him the bread of presence, five of the 12 loaves, to sustain him and his men. Because he saw that there was a higher purpose, a, a purpose of mercy in taking the care of David during this important thing. And neither Abathar or David were condemned anywhere in scripture for them doing this. And so one of the things that Jesus consistently did, and it's not only the way that he fought back Satan, right, but it's the way that he fought back the Pharisees and it helped them try to see who he was and helped them try to understand Scripture, is he would always bring back Scripture to them. And they, contrary to much of our society today, they believed in the authenticity of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture. They believed it was God's word to them. And so Jesus could use it authoritatively with them. You try to use scripture authoritatively with friends and and co-workers and stuff like that, today they just roll their eyes and say, well, that's just your opinion or whatever. But but back in the day, back with the Pharisees, he could quote the scriptures and and it would cause them to think and it would cause them to mull over what he said and they knew that the scriptures can't be broken. So when Jesus made this point, he was really combating their literalistic view of this extra law that they created. And so he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man— And not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now that's an interesting saying. Sometimes people take that and say, well, the Sabbath was made for man, so I can do whatever I want on it. But that would be contrary to all of Scripture, where God sends plagues. He, 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 he sent all kinds of consequences to the people of Israel when they were breaking the Sabbath. In fact, the 70 years that they were exiled was one year for every Sabbath year that they had broken. I mean, it was, it, was, it, was, it was God's punishment. He takes it very seriously. It is made for man, but we need it. And so God says, you should do this. You need to do this, lest you forget me. And that was the problem in the exile. They had forgotten the Lord. So, how do we apply that today? As clearly as I can see, all the way through Scripture, God speaks of a Sabbath as being a day a day that we dedicate to God, we dedicate to rest, and we dedicate to play. Perfect world, that is the way the Sabbath looks. It's a day that we regenerate. It's a day that we find excitement in the Lord. It's a day that we find rest for hard labor, if any of you guys do hard labor, right? It, it's a day that you play and refocus on what's important in life. God, family, right? Yourself just, I mean, doing these things that we need to do. And that's what the Sabbath is intended to do. It's intended to restore. It's not optional. God makes that super clear as we go through Scripture. But it is super important. important. Now, sometimes I'll get questions and say, what if you have to work on the Sabbath? Well, as clearly as I can say again, all the way through Scripture, God says, you shouldn't be working on the Sabbath. And so if you are, then you've got to find another day that's your Sabbath day, a day to rest, a day to play, and a day to celebrate with the Lord. And I've grown a little bit in my understanding of the Sabbath because I was taught a whole bunch of different things growing up. And, and, and it's not just doing devotions. Well, that's super important. That's one of God's commands to do on a daily basis, right? It's, it's like eating daily. We need daily nourishment from his word, from food, all those different things. You can't just eat once a week or you're going to be a mess. And the same is true with God's word. But the Sabbath is to be different from those daily devotions and those daily prayer times. It's to be a time, and, and the way God set it up, a day, where we just refocus on Him. Again, where we play, where we rest, where we worship. And that's what's supposed to be done on the Sabbath. And that's why it was given to man, and that's why it's important that we do it. And so Jesus combated their thoughts and saying, they thought again, they had them in a trap. Hey, you're, 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 you're not following the Ten Commandments. How can you be from God? But then again, he says, no, it's good to do good on the, on, the, on the Sabbath. It's good to worship on the Sabbath. It's good to do good things on the Sabbath, to show mercy on the Sabbath, all those different things. And so again, keeping with the Sabbath theme, we go on to another thing where they think again that they've got them. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Just to give you a, a clear understanding of how hard in their heart was, they're actually looking to Jesus to accuse him if he would heal somebody on that Sabbath. Now, again, with the literalistic view of the law, they had rules that unless it was life-threatening, you couldn't go see a doctor on the Sabbath, You'd have to wait until Monday, or in this case, Sunday, to go visit the doctor. But on the Sabbath, you couldn't go visit a doctor unless you were about to die. That was the rule. And that was an accepted rule by all the uh, Pharisees and all the people, and they just understood that. So when Jesus was asked to heal on the Sabbath, it wasn't life-threatening. The guy wasn't going to die. Why are you working on the Sabbath? And so they asked him, would you see if they would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And they all got excited, right? Because they're thinking, now we get a chance to accuse Jesus. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they all were silent. You can just imagine Jesus going up and down the row of Pharisees that were sitting there that day looking for any glimmer of mercy, anything that would show a beating heart, a caring heart, To help this guy who was clearly suffering in his adversity. He looked around at them and, not finding anything, not a semblance of mercy or heart anywhere, he was angered and grieved all at the same time, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Now, Jesus is brilliant. I mean, he can find ways, all sorts of ways. By asking a guy to stretch out his hand, it's not healing. So the Pharisees were like kind of frustrated. Clearly he healed the guy, but he just said stretch out his hand. And it's not a sin to obey a command, to stretch out your hand. So both the one who was healed and both Jesus were exonerated because no healing was done. It's not like he put mud on his eyes or touched him in any fashion. He just said, put out your hand. So the Pharisees' response to that is that they went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. The Herodians were people that supported Herod and the Roman rule. Uh, They would um, usually be viewed akin to tax collectors and would be hated by the Pharisees, uh, avoided by the Pharisees, had nothing to do with by the Pharisees. But hatred makes interesting bedfellows, doesn't it? And they needed a civil arm to try to do some harm to Jesus. Jesus. And so they went and plotted with the state to try to get their way. It's interesting throughout the course of history, Christian history, there's two times when Christians seek out the state to uh, union with them. One is when they're totally disadvantaged and if they have a, a caring ear with the state, sometimes their enemies can be punished, okay? And the other time is when they have all the power and they try to legislate morality. Now, In in America, we can vote for morality. I encourage you to vote for the kind of country that you want to be in, right? And and I I vote for a moral country, (laughs) at least akin to to Scripture. I think that's just wise and smart. God promises blessing as a result. But it's an overreach by Christians with the state, usually, right? And and so whether we're totally in power or in lack of power is when we union with the state. And usually both seem to backfire in terms of helping people see Jesus. Because nothing helps people see Jesus like a good old fight in Congress, right? I mean, that's the time that people see Jesus the best, right? But, but the reality is, we go both ways. And throughout the history of mankind, you see both of those things. Um, and so, the Pharisees were without power. They didn't seem to be able to do anything to combat Jesus. They needed a civil arm. They needed somebody with power to harm him. They needed some help. So they went to a people that they would usually despise. They work together to collaborate on how to dispose of Jesus. It's an interesting thing in our world today, um, and you see this on um, the, the secularists and uh, Islam have seemed to create one of those unions right? Um, Two parties that usually would be in opposition to one another, and you can see that a little bit playing out in in Europe right now. You you have the secularists against some of the the Islamic front, and and they're having big debates on uh, who should have sway, and and the secularists feel like they're losing their country, and and all sorts of things, but it's finally coming to a head. Um, But for years, they just coexisted, and they they were um, political allies in a lot of ways, and in America, Interestingly enough, you see these two polar opposite arms in terms of Sharia law and secularism, which are almost polar opposites, um, as uh, people linked in politics, as people that have come together for a common purpose. It's just interesting Uh, World views and and all that stuff doesn't seem to matter as long as you're working on a common end and you still see that today just an interesting side note So Jesus oh and I want to make one more uh, interesting note So Jesus everywhere he went people were looking to to try to string him up to try to accuse him to try to get trip him up in his words I mean they wanted more than anything to put him in jail or to find some criminal means to execute him I mean they just wanted him gone I want you to think of that in terms of being a Christian here today. We don't face too much persecution, but I just read an article um, in China. President Xi, I think that's what you say, Xi, he's been the president now since 2015 ish, 2014. But anyway, since then, he's actually systematically and on purpose uh, began persecuting Christians. in a much more up-tempo way in China. In 2014, there was about 40,000 Christians that were persecuted. Today, that number is close to 200,000 in in, in number. He's asked all the churches, uh, a few years ago, he went through kind of a a thing where if your cross was too prominent, right, he asked you to take it down. And so all these churches in China had to take down their crosses because in China, the state must be first. He wants all religions to be, um, I forget the word they use, but kind of china China-atized, you know, kind of thing. And so now they're asking all churches to put face recognition cameras at their front doors so they can see who it is that's coming to worship. Interesting note, right? And they're also asking to post signs that warn children. Let me see if I get all the things right. Military personnel, civil personnel, or students to avoid coming in the doors. So if that were the state of Christianity in the United States, tomorrow, how many people do you think would be in church on Sunday? I mean, the cameras, the facial recognition cameras means that you go into a list identified as Christians. And if you don't put the sign up, if you don't put the equipment up, you can be charged as rebelling against the China state. And what President Xi has said is that he sees religions as a threat to the power of China. And so it's not just Christians that he's attacked. He's also uh, created these camps to try to um, help people that are struggling with it, or he, he would say struggling with Islam, see a, a more Chinese way forward. And so in these camps, he's actually forcing them to eat pork and all sorts of things that are against their religion. So it's an interesting thing. But we have it so good in America, right, in terms of being able to worship in freedom, to be able to share our faith. And yet when it rains, you can tell the difference in attendance. People in China right now are still going to church in mass and they're convinced that through this persecution and through this hardship, more and more are gonna come to the faith because that's actually the history of the church whenever there's been persecution. It's grown the numbers of people, it's grown numerically the numbers of people that are coming to faith in Jesus. We live in a very different world than the rest of our world does. Um, there's actually a, a systematic persecution of Christians all the way through the Middle East right now, where people are being killed all the time. Um, the U.S. government even recognized, and I forget the word for it, but it, kind of like an ethnic cleansing of Christians going on in the Middle East right now. China is clamping down. Russia is no friend. It's just an interesting thing. In America, we take it so for granted that we just don't appreciate the freedom we have. And we don't appreciate how different our experience is from the rest of the world. So anyway, so everywhere Jesus went, and, and if you were persecuted every time you came to church, would you come to church? <laughs> you're like, not that church, you know. But the reality is that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus withdrew then with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and, and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from the, around Tyre and Sidon. And so what Jesus did here is he recognizes that the plots against him are increasing. And so he had a choice. Either we could have this confrontation now, and my ministry comes to an end, and we do this whole. Passion, Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Easter thing now. Or I'm going to take a more strategic approach and try to gain more time to do more teaching, to prepare my disciples differently, to to help more people get to know who I am. So we withdrew to the sea. And when he withdrew to the sea, what happened? A ton of people came after him. He might have gone for some relaxation and some, you know, some Sabbath kind of stuff, rest and fun and all those different things and worship. But everybody seemed to follow him from all over the place. When the great crowd heard of all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So there were so many people, right, that he was forced onto a boat, right, so that he could teach the people who were there. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And again, he strictly ordered them not to make, make him known. And so Jesus was somewhat popular at that point. And seriously, if you had a disease that couldn't be healed in any possible way and you heard of a Jesus that could maybe heal it, wouldn't you go see him? And if you were desperate enough, wouldn't you do everything you could to try to touch the man because you had heard, if I can just touch him, I could be healed. Now I want you to think from Jesus' perspective a little space, but there is no space because everybody's trying to be healed. Everybody's trying to touch you. Everybody's trying to gather around you. Everybody's want what you got, right? And there is no anonymity anymore, and there is no alone time, and there's no place to recharge, and there's just, it's just constant ministry. And one of the things that it says in the other gospels that I'm always blown away by is when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion on the people. Man, if that was 24-7, if that was all the time, wouldn't you be like, hey, I need a time out. I'll meet you back tomorrow around 8. You know, I I just, I need to, I need some alone time, you know? But right now, there was no alone time for Jesus. He had gone to the seas to get away from some of the persecution, but the people followed in mass. Um, And another thing here, it's interesting, the evil spirits... I, I just felt they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. It's an interesting thing, it, when you talk about angels and, and humans. Angels clearly are the superior creation in terms of ability, in terms of being in the presence of God, and in terms of spiritual gifts, in terms of all their ability, and able, to, they can fly. I mean, all, all sorts of cool things, right? But demons are evil angels, okay? They've, so they've fallen from God's grace, but, but when they see Jesus, they're terrified of him. Shouldn't that give us pause in the way we look at Jesus at times? He says we can call him our friend, which is intimate. And, and, and yet sometimes I think we take that to buddy-ish, right? Where, where he doesn't really judge us. We can be kind of be us. But these incredibly powerful beings who are in the presence of God's son and know that they've chosen the wrong side, Right? they fall to their knees in terror and they cry out that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, they cry that out <coughs> because they're trying to usher in the final days, right? And they're trying to cause that conflict that causes him to be killed and all those different things. But but the reality is they have a fear of God. And, and I think that's so... I was talking to a lady after the last service and, and she came out and she's reading a book on, on God's holiness, right? And she's just so blown away by... Just who God is, right? Because she's reading through this book and it's kind of going in depth about the holiness of God. And she says, I think that's so lost on our culture today. And it is. We, we don't have that healthy fear, love, and trust of God, right? Because we so often view him as, as granddaddy or buddy instead of This incredible God who created the heavens and the earth, this incredible God for whom nothing is impossible, this incredible God who's shown, again, mercy and grace, not giving us our just rewards, which would be death and hell, but giving us mercy and grace so that we could be with him in heaven through Jesus. And so when we approach him in prayer, are you demanding of God or are you respectful and humble and asking for his mercy and grace? So you can tell the way we look at God sometimes by the way we pray to him. And he does call us, to, we can be friends with him, right? He, he, Abba, father, as daddy. But we have to also balance that with the fact that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And when we get all demandy, he's patient and long-suffering, right? But, but that's missing out on part of who God is. And, these, and, and just as an example of that, when these evil angels, right, the demons, they, they see God's son, They're terrified and give homage to him as they're crying out his name. And so the people are packing around him. Demons are shouting out his name and they're coming out. The people are being healed. And he went up to the mountain and called called to him those who he desired. I must answer that question. Good. Um, Whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. So they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, it's an interesting thing. What was the main task of the disciples? To preach God's truth, right? To get the word out and then to confront the evil one. You could call that counseling today. You could call it exorcisms or whatever you want. But but the reality is that was their two main jobs. And so when the church is operating rightly, Luther even says uh, the main job of a pastor is to preach God's truth, forgiveness of sins, the good news, right? And to minister the sacraments which do the same thing. That is the main job. And yet what's interesting is you you go through different churches all across America, they have pastors doing some of the craziest things that are totally devoid of that main function of just preaching and teaching and getting them out in every possible way, having them share the truth of God. But that is to be the main function of the pastor. That's why they exist, it's to be your shepherd in terms of giving you his truth over and over and over and over so that you know it. So when hard times come, the Spirit's in you and crying out those words of truth to you. That you're forgiven, that you're loved, that you're healed, that he's working all things for your good, all those different things. And then he names the disciples and he says, He appointed twelve Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Bonerges, or something like that, that is, Sons of Thunder, Uh, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, also known as Levi and uh, other gospels, and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, uh, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So it's interesting, even as in he labeled it, he kind of gave the the leaders of the disciples. First Peter, who is kind of the outspoken one, always ready to speak for everybody. Then James and John, who were like the, the inner circle. and made up the three that were in this inner circle. Incredibly passionate people who love the Lord. And then he gives the, the next group of people, including Thomas, which is a kind of a, from Missouri, a show-me kind of person, right? I'll believe it when I see it. And, and aren't we glad Thomas is in Scripture, right? Just because he wouldn't believe anything unless he saw it. And the Lord showed compassion on those people that are like that and showed him his wounds and his, and his scars and said, Thomas, I'm alive and he said you know my Savior and Lord right I mean he confessed him as Savior and Lord at that moment and then as he goes down he does the last one was Judas Iscariot who betrayed him it's an interesting thing Jesus certainly had privy information to a lot of things he was 100% God and 100% uh, man at the same time Um, and and you read different accounts and different things but you just wonder did he know that Judas was the one who's gonna betray him from the start That's just a neat question. I don't know that we have the answers to that. If he didn't, then he picked Judas as one that he wanted to go out and spread the gospel. He poured into him as one that he wanted to see in heaven. And then it just got revealed to him over time who it was. If he did know, can you imagine the difficulty of that ministry? Pouring into this guy, knowing that it was not going to have effect praying, pleading for this guy, as Moses would plead for the people of Israel, right? For this guy who you knew would ultimately betray you. Either way, when it occurred to Jesus or it was revealed to Jesus that this was the guy, it had to be hard. And yet all of them were listed there, and they were kind of separated from the other group of disciples that followed him all the days of, of Jesus' ministry. Um, in Acts, he learned that there's like 500 people or whatever that followed him all the time, and I think that was the number. A whole bunch of people followed him all the time, and, and so here he points 12 that are to be the leaders, that are kind of be the defunct disciples of, of Jesus. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, were, for they were saying he's out of his mind. So he went home to Capernaum, which I guess is his new adopted home. It's where Peter lived. It's where all these different people lived. But he went home just to get some relaxation, to see mom, to see his brothers and whatever. And what happens? Everybody still follows him. In you know, other scriptures that said, again, he showed compassion. But you just get this picture of Jesus that he's just teaching constantly. People are bringing him food and he's saying, I can't eat right now, I gotta do this ministry. You know, I gotta do this, I, I gotta heal this person. I gotta share with them the gospel over here. I, I wanna share with them wisdom over here and, and this part of, and the aspect of life. I, I just gotta keep teaching. And how many of you guys have ever got passionate about something where you've skipped a meal? Right? I mean, he's just in the zone, and he's, and he's passionate, and he's excited about what he's doing, but he's not taking care of himself. Clearly, and other people can see that he's not taking care of himself. Anybody you know that's been that passionate, where you're like, you need to eat something. I mean, you need to, you need to eat something, or you're just going to pass out. And, and so the family got concerned, legitimately concerned about Jesus' welfare. And they, at this point in other scriptures, it says that they're still struggling with, the brothers at least were, and, and His family, except for mom, uh, some of them were still struggling with him as being the Messiah, right? They didn't come to faith until later when he appeared after the resurrection. That's when it seems that most of them became believers, right? But at this point, they're just concerned about their brother. He's out of his mind. He's not taking care of himself. He's not going to make it if he keeps going at this route. He gets no peace. He gets no alone time. He can't do anything. I mean, people are always there. And the scribes, who are probably watching this scene, right, take an opportunity. Family just said he's out of his mind. So using that, they said, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, right? Out of his mind, must be crazy, probably possessed by Satan. That's what they're saying, possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, Now, why would Jesus move to parables at this point? Well, they're looking for anything they can do to attack him. And so he uses parables to make a very clear point without specifically saying it, right? So he calls them to him and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan... uh, has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless his first uh, binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder this house." And so it was somewhat easy for Jesus to refute their logic because there wasn't any logic to it. Satan wouldn't cast himself out. That would be counterproductive. He would go and demonize more people, right? Infiltrate more people. And so he would kind of just use that simple logic to say, you guys are nuts. You, you clearly aren't, uh, haven't put much thought into this. But then he says this too. He says, Uh, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. He says, I'm the strong man that's come into that, or I'm not, I'm the person that's come into the house and I bound the strong man, which is Satan, right? And because I bound the strong man, which is Satan, I can cast out his demons. And that's why they bow down to me in reverence. And that's why they scream to me, don't send me to punishment. And that's why they're crying my name. Then indeed, he says, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So throughout the church's history, they have viewed this as meaning that the ultimate sin, the unforgivable sin, is a rejection of God's Spirit, which is a rejection of faith in Jesus Christ. Which makes sense, because it's only through Jesus that we're saved, right? And they were saying that what Jesus was doing, right, was not of God, was not through the Spirit. He was not the Messiah he claimed to be, It was a rejection of all who Jesus was as the Messiah and Lord. It was a rejection of the Spirit who was trying to work faith in their hearts. And that is the unforgivable sin. And if you've ever tried sharing your faith with somebody who just doesn't want to hear, you get a sense of that closed-offness. I've watched people, um, I've been here now for 14 plus years and so I've I've watched people early on who are excited about the Lord and then something happens in their life and they fall away and then for Easter or something they come back and, and they say hi or whatever but you can almost see like a shade's been drawn over before there was life in their eyes and hope and I don't know, and faith I guess and it's like a shade has come over and there's, there's no moss right? It's they're coming because it's Easter or to please mom and dad but There's no more heart in it. It's an interesting thing, but all the way through scripture, it seems to indicate that same thing. It's only through Jesus that we're saved. And if you reject the Spirit's work and you create faith in your heart, you don't get to go to heaven. You get to go to hell. And and that is, you know, you hear all this kind of stuff, that's a bet that you shouldn't take, you know. I I have a, a buddy, he would say, well, what if you live your whole life and you find out there's no God? And I said, worst case scenario? He goes, yeah, I've helped a bunch of people. What if I'm right? He goes, well, I'm in trouble. Uh, I McDowell or somebody said, that, that's just a bet you shouldn't take. But, but the reality is the thing that separates us from God is a rejection of his Spirit's work in our hearts. It's a rejection of faith in the Lord Jesus. And that's what he's talking about here. And that's what the Pharisees were struggling with. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent him and called him, and the crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And so some of Jesus' disciples, maybe even, some of his friends, they went to get mom and dad and the, his brothers, and, or mom and his brothers, to, to talk some sense into Jesus, to get him to slow down or eat or something. you know. And, and so they come in response to that. Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? and looking out about at those who sat around him he said here are my mother and my brothers whoever does the will of god he is my mother and brother and sister it's an interesting thing as a dad and as a husband and as a kid and all those different things that i have relationships with i kind of startled at Jesus' first you know saying you know who's my mother and brother well no i We're family, man. That should mean something. I should get to come into your house. You know, I mean, mean, if anybody, you you should listen to me, right? Because we're family. (laughs) And what Jesus was saying is, my mother and brothers are ultimately those who believe in me, right? That are going to be in heaven with me. They called the church a family of God and truly especially into our world today. I mean, our world's idea of family has changed so much, hasn't it? It used to be everybody was out on the farm working or whatever, and then it went to the nuclear family where there's mom and dad at home, and then maybe dad worked or both mom worked, and, and, and the kids were at home and went to school. And then today it's just so different. Um, I think it's gone a, a difficult way because of sin in a lot of ways. And so you have single mothers abound, and you have single dads abound, and you have kids with family trees that would just make your head hurt. Gracie was sharing that one of her friends, um, her mom just got married to her fifth husband, so she's had four kind of dads already and now a fifth one in the mix. It's just very different today. In in a world where family's been kind of tattered and and stretched and, and all those things, the church has a vital role to play, I think, in being a family, for a lot of different people. You know, when you come to church, you can find moms abound. Did you know that? Ladies that will pray for you and care for you and ask you how you're doing. You can find dads abound in terms of the wisdom that you can get if you just go to some Bible studies or you engage some of these guys in conversations about life. They've got wisdom. They've got a a heart for the Lord. They, They can share with you just amazing things. If you don't have kids, there's kids abound where you can love on them and and, and pray for them, that, that God keeps them close to him, and, and that after they leave school, they come back, right? That that they come back to church, that they stay close to God. I mean, we're just supposed to be a family that cares about each other. And I know that gets stretched because a lot of us just leave on Sunday morning and don't talk to anybody, but but that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a strength for another in the midst of the storms of life. I remember I was uh, in college, and I, and I went from... It was my sophomore year and, and I kind of came home that, that, earlier that summer after my freshman year and felt like something was missing from my life and I didn't know tangibly what it was until I started going to church again with mom and dad. you know, And, and it's what we did at home, so you just went to church. And, and I was sitting in church one time during the summer and I'm like, oh, this is what I was missing, I'm missing God. And it was just like this crazy thing like, how could I miss God, I'm missing God. And so I was like, okay, so my sophomore year, I went back and I decided I'm gonna read through the Bible. I started in Genesis and spent like an hour a day. It was my first homework assignment. and went all the way through. But it was interesting. I went from having literally zero Christian friends at the beginning of my sophomore year and through a process of bumps and bruises and whatever along my sophomore year, I, I ended the year by having 150 plus friends that were Christians because I got, made some different decisions, got out of a fraternity, got involved into the Christian group, all sorts of different things. Um but that experience truly transformed my life because I had people that I was walking through life with that loved the Lord as much or more than I did and it was infectious and I wanted to be around them because they reminded me of what was important and we could have fun without having to try to find every sin in the book to break, right? It was, it was cool. And I remember during the course of that, I went with one of my buddies to, ai don't know, you call it a revival, I guess, you know, and it was in Anaheim Stadium And I just remembered, because I hadn't had very many Christian friends, I had a a couple at that point, and, and I was in this stadium, and it was filled with Christians, and I didn't have a high opinion of Southern California, even at that time, in terms of Christianity, and I was blown away. I said, all these people love Jesus. And it was an encouragement for me. I'm not alone. There's tons of people that love Jesus. Guys, when you come to church, there should be an encouragement that comes. You shouldn't just go home and not connect with these people because God gave them to you to be a strength for you as you're walking through life. That's what it's meant for. That's why he wants you to be involved at a more personal level. I mean, you can come for the truth, and you can hear the teaching, and that's awesome, but he really wants you to get connected because ultimately we need that family. We need that strength anyway he says that he's looking around and those who sat with around him he said here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god is my brother and my sister and my mother in other words all who believe in me that's my family he picks up and shoo i went over okay so we're gonna pick up in chapter four next week um let me pray god we we thank you for this time tonight we it's it's amazing. Uh, the kind of adversity that you experienced as you went and you tried to share with this world the saving message of the gospel. <laughs> the fact that if the people would just believe in you, they could find forgiveness and, and life eternal. Father, at every step, it seemed, at least during this part of your ministry, you faced opposition. You faced hatred. You faced people who were trying to trip you up. And the world around us, as we know it, there's a lot more persecution than I think that we are aware of. Father, we pray for a couple of things in the midst of that. We We pray that you keep coming after us, that you keep pursuing us with your love, that you keep reminding us of your truths, that you share your forgiveness in ways that are tangible, that free us from our past, that you just continue to love us, Lord. And we also pray for this country and that you allow us to preserve our freedom to worship you without encumbrance, without fear of persecution, without fear of face reading or whatever it is, that you allow us the freedom to continue to worship you and that you protect our country in the meantime. Father, we love you so much and we ask that you be with us this week in all that we do and say and we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Guys, I want you to go with this blessing tonight. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you now with his favor and grant you forever his peace. Guys, once again, go in that peace and serve your Lord always with joy.